Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Dean. I'm one of the pastors at Alpine. It's always great to be here. And uh, I came from South Ogden this morning, so I have some good news for you um, that live up here as I went through Sardine Canyon. I realized that your city or county loves you a lot more than they love people coming into Logan. Because when I looked on the other side of the road, it was all clear, scraped nice and good, and on my side, it was just snow and ice. So I wasn't, and there is nobody around to uh, help with that, it didn't appear to be. So anyways, they obviously, are concerned about you getting out, but they don't care if anybody gets in. So um, it's great to be here. Um, we're in the book of Mark. Um, this is uh, our third week in chapter two of Mark, and we've been looking at kind of the toxic religion that existed and some confrontations that Jesus was having with the religious leaders at that time, there were actually four confrontations that he had in chapter 2 that Mark points out. And so today, we're looking at that third confrontation um, together. I grew up in Southern California. Anybody else from Southern California? All right, so 21, 21 years ago, I moved out here. And when I moved out here, I recognized something immediately. Something was significantly different. Um, it wasn't even the mountains, because in Southern California there's some mountains, but not like this, but there were some mountains. Um, but the thing that was so significantly different was that in Southern California, when you're on the freeway, all you see is little cars, little expensive cars. And when you come here, all you see is pickup trucks. I mean. Uh, it's a significant, significant difference. And for 18 years, I held out. I didn't get a truck. My, my son kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me, telling me I needed to get a truck. And I kept on saying, I don't need a truck. There's no reason to get a truck. And he kept bugging me. And three years ago, I caved. Um, and I got a Ford F-150. Um, you know, I, I do like Dodge Rams, and maybe some of you have Chevy Silverados or GMC Sierras. Um, I'm probably a fan of all of them, but I ended up with a Ford 150, um, even though I might actually like Dodge Rams more. But anyways, um, it's really interesting because in our um, pastoral meetings on Tuesdays, when we get there, you can see there's four F-150s lined up, and then there's a Dodge Ram way over here in the parking lot. I actually haven't seen that Dodge Ram lately, so I think they may have caved to peer pressure and, and gotten a Ford F-150 or something, because I don't see the Ram anymore. But anyways, as it turns out, uh, getting an F-150 for me was perfect timing because I actually ended up needing it um, for some property that uh, I have. And so it's done exactly what it was intended to do. 
It uh, has helped me move stuff um, that I wouldn't have been able to move otherwise. It's uh, towed a couple loads of uh, branches, etc., to the dump that I have a trailer with. It uh, helps me get through dirt roads that are really, really muddy at this time of the year. Uh, it's given me a place for my husky dog to be in the back. Probably helped me get here today. So it's done everything that it's intended to do. It's been great. However, even though this truck has some bells and whistles with it, it's not built or intended for every job. If I desired to tow a fifth wheel with it, or if I desired to take my trailer and put a tractor on it and try to tow it, it's not going to work. It was never meant for that. No matter what the truck is good for, it's not sufficient to accomplish those things. I can't force it to work for that. It just doesn't fit. However, it gives me a good idea of what is possible with the right truck. My wife has a similar issue. For two years, she's been trying to create what she calls a crawfish. We have this space in our, our home, a little, little area, and she desires to make it a craft room and an office. So that's where you get crawfish from, or that's where she gets crawfish from. So anyway, she calls it a crawfish. It's not going to happen. I've told her it over and over. It's been two years. She still believes she's going to get this crawfish, but it just wasn't intended to fit both of those things. She needs a separate space for an office. So the bottom line is, I really need a Ford 350, and, and she really needs a separate office space. And in many ways, the religion that we have been kind of looking at these last couple of weeks is like my F-150 or the small room in our house. It's good for some things, and it points out the right direction that we should go, but it never was meant to accomplish what a 350 can do, or a separate office. In other words, this religion can never accomplish what Jesus can. Jesus is the 350. He's the real deal. And you just can't put a 350 into a 150, can you? It just doesn't fit. Nor can you add Jesus to the religion that the religious leaders had created and that we've been looking at. It's just not a fit unless you change the very heart of religion. And that is what our passage this morning is going to communicate. Jesus is not a fit for the religion that they were practicing because the very heart of that religion was missing. And as a result, Jesus' actions didn't line up with theirs. We saw last week where Jesus was doing that which was not considered religious. He was hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, 
religious system didn't like that. And this week we are going to see what he wasn't doing that was considered religious. He was doing things that the religious leaders thought he should not be doing and wasn't doing things that they, he, they thought that he should be doing. He wasn't fitting in at all with the religious system of the day. So what was he not doing that they thought he should be doing? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at our passage this morning, which begins in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, Why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Fasting is just one of the many practices that had been built into the religious system of that day that you could not fit Jesus in, that those that we are calling the religious police wanted him to fit into. They couldn't understand why, if Jesus was religious, why he wasn't following the ritual of fasting as they did. And so they asked. So let's just take a moment or two and look at fasting, um, just to kind of get a background of it and how it fits into where we're going today. So fasting was actually not even a requirement of the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus 26.19, it talks about humbling yourself annually, once a year, for the Day of Atonement. Now, the Jewish people took that to mean fasting. But if you look at the Hebrew language of Leviticus, the word fasting is not there. And then we have the Pharisees who decided that they were going to implement fasting twice a week. So they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays of every, every week, rain or shine, regardless. They made it a ritual. They made it about an outward sign of a personal holiness when it was intended to reflect something different. Fasting was intended to reflect a declaration that something is wrong, whether it's something wrong in your own personal life or whether it's something wrong in the nation. It came to have a sign of meaning mourning, a loss, being in grief with a hope and a longing for deliverance. And perhaps maybe that's why John the Baptist's followers were fasting because at this time he probably was in prison and they were grieving that. Fasting was intended to reflect a drawing to the presence of God. It became a sign of repentance and seeking forgiveness and humbling yourself before God. And again, maybe John the Baptist's disciples were fasting because of that, because he came preaching repentance. And then fasting was intended to reflect a dependence on God. It was a, science, a sign of reliance on God for meeting your needs, all of your needs, whether it was for food, for rain, for, for healing, it was a sense of reliance on God. And that's why about two months ago we asked you to fast for our property in Syracuse. Because the whole intent was to 
reflect and understand that we were completely dependent on God to move in that situation. And some of you know the story that goes along with that. So two months ago, we asked you to, to fast um, on a specific day, which was like three weeks later. And so that day came, and we were actually, it was a, it was a Tuesday. It was actually when we were having a meeting. Our meeting was almost over. And at the end of the meeting, I got a call, and it was an offer on that property. The very day that we requested fasting, God answered that. And you can continue to pray in regards to that because they have their 90 days of due diligence and 30 days to close, and there's a million things that have to happen to make it happen. So you can continue to pray regarding that. But however, because fasting had turned into a religious ritual that was a requirement, those that were part of the system and saw it as part of their religion were left questioning Jesus and his disciples' piety and their sincerity and devotion to God because they weren't following the rules. They were not fitting into the religion of the day. The religious police wanted Jesus to fit into all of their boxes, and he wasn't. And they would be okay if he was, but they wouldn't be okay if he didn't fit into their systems. And so what was Jesus' response to the religious police? He explains why it wasn't a fit by giving them an example of a wedding feast. Going on in Mark chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 says, Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus draws from a common experience of the day a wedding celebration. And in this illustration, the groom is Jesus, and the wedding guests are his followers. And it's interesting in the Old Testament that every time bridegroom is used, it's a reference to God. And so Jesus, once again, is making it clear that he is identifying himself as God. And what was interesting about these wedding ceremonies that is completely different than what we experience today is that in their day, when the wedding was over, they didn't go on a honeymoon. There was a week-long celebration with their guests. Completely different than what we experience. And so they just had a party for a week. And in fact, the rabbis of the day said that the joy of the wedding was more important than any of their religious rituals, including fasting, and because it was a time of joy and celebration. And so fasting on Monday and Thursday went away. They didn't have to do that. Nobody fasted at a wedding. Fasting wasn't how you celebrated. It wasn't appropriate. And so likewise, Jesus is trying to make the point now that he is with his disciples, it's not time to, it's not time to fast because he's with them. It's time to have a feast. It's time to celebrate. God was with them. God was in their midst. People were being healed by God. People were responding to God's truth. Demons were being cast out and people were being delivered. People were repenting of their sin. 
God was among them. And so it was a time of joy and celebration with the presence of God with them, just like at a wedding feast. But the religious leaders were so concentrated on the ritual of fasting that they were blind to what was happening right in front of them. And that's something that we need to consider in our lives. Sometimes we get so caught up in doing the ritualistic that we don't see what God is actually doing in and around us. Well, going on with this wedding feast theme, typically the wedding guests leave the bridegroom at the end of the, of the week, at the end of the party. But Jesus says in this particular situation, the bridegroom will be taken away. The Greek here means violently removed. So the joy of that celebration will end. And it's probably a foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross. And the implication was that there would be a time coming that Jesus' disciples and followers would be fasting, just like John the Baptist and the Pharisees. But it wasn't because it was a ritual. It wasn't because it was part of a religious system. It wasn't because he wanted them to appear to be holy. Jesus makes it clear that fasting is not about checking off a box. Fasting is tied into what is happening. When you're celebrating God's goodness and his mercy and his salvation, it's not a time to, to fast. It's a time to respond with praise and gratitude. But when you're mourning and you're repenting and you're relying on him, that is the right activity to express your sorrow, your need, your brokenness. What we need to understand here is that although fasting is the topic right here, the same principle applies to every spiritual practice, every spiritual discipline, every spiritual activity that we participate in. Whether it be church attendance, doing your little Bible reading plan, giving, volunteering, worshiping, praying, it shouldn't be done ritualistically. It shouldn't be done to look righteous. It shouldn't be done to fulfill your religious duty. It should be done to express a genuine heart response to God. You see, religion treats spiritual practices like requirements on a checklist. But Jesus treats them as opportunities to express your heart toward God. And that is why Jesus couldn't fit into the religion, into a religious system that was just about ritual and rules. And that is why Jesus goes on to explain this by using a couple illustrations. Continuing on in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, it says, Besides, this is Jesus speaking. Who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So Jesus gives two similar illustrations to make his point here. The first one is you don't put, or you don't patch old clothing with a new patch, and you don't put new wine into old wineskins. I kind of get the first one real easy because my wife has told me for years, make sure when you wash your new jeans, you do it in cold water because otherwise they're going to shrink. We kind of we know that. And so Jesus is pointing out the picture, this illustration of you can't take something that's new, cloth, and try to patch it on something that's old that's been washed, because when you do that and you wash them together, the new part is going to shrink and tear. And like it says, it'll probably make a worse situation than before. And then with the wine illustration, the wineskins were made out of leather, either from sheep or from lamb. And over time, their ability to give, their ability to stretch, um, wouldn't be as great as it was before. So with unfermented grape juice, when you put it into one of those wineskins, it's not an issue, but soon that wine begins to ferment and gases are created and the wine increases and the skins, those leather skins have to expand. And if they're old and they're brittle, they're not gonna expand they're going to burst, and the wine skin is going to be ruined, and the wine is going to be lost. So what's clear from this passage and what Jesus is communicating is that something new is on the scene, a new patch, a new wine, and that something new is the Messiah himself. Jesus, and he can't be contained in the old. He can't be contained in that religious system, a religion that was rigid and based on rituals and rules, that was committed to the ceremonial laws of Moses, but was also just as committed to their own traditions of interpreting that law and adding all these additional rules. So their approach to religion was inflexible, it was brittle. There is no room for grace. There is no room for anything. It ended up being a religion that was based, it could only be based on outward appearance and activity. It became an end to itself. And this made it incompatible with the old. The new was incompatible with the old. And when I thought about this, I... I thought, okay, how could I show that there's incompatibility? And so I went to the world of food and looked at that. And so I think most of us realize that we don't mix, you know, we don't eat melon and drink milk at the same time. I don't know how many of you have done that, or maybe you just know that's not the best thing to do, because when you eat melon, there's gases that are produced in your stomach, acid, 
to break down that melon, but it also curdles the milk, which causes some issues. So, not compatible. In the world of chemistry, you don't mix silver nitrate and ethanol because it's going to explode. It's not compatible. The new is not compatible with the old. They don't go together. You can't add one to the other. But that's exactly what the religious leaders were trying to do with Jesus. They were trying to make him fit into their system. They, they loved his teaching, and they would love to have had him fit within their traditions. They were hoping for some kind of compromise with him so that they could retain their Pharisaic Judaism and the best of what he had to offer. But Jesus exposed the folly of that approach and said, you cannot put new clothing and make a patch and put on something old. It's not going to work. You can't add rejoicing to mourning. You can't add grace to self-righteousness. You can't add humility to pridefulness of religious demonstrations. You can't add a transformed heart to tradition. The Christian life is not mixing the old with the new. It is a fulfillment of the old in the new. A good example of that is an acorn. There's two ways to destroy a thing. You can smash it, or you can commit to allowing it to fulfill itself. And with an acorn, you can take a hammer, and you could smash it, and you could destroy it, or you could plant it and allow it to grow into an oak tree. In both instances, the destruction of the acorn is accomplished, but in the second instance, the acorn is destroyed by being fulfilled. The law is fulfilled at Calvary by Jesus. He fulfills that law. He fulfills the prophecies, the types, and the demands of the law of Moses. He is the completion of it. And that's why the point is being made here that you can't just add Jesus to a religious system because you will destroy what Jesus came for. And what Jesus came for was to put the heart into religion. Question for you. Have you missed the heart of religion? Have the religious practices that you participate in become an end to themselves? Why are you here? Why am I up here giving a message? Do we do them to be religious? How ritualistic are they? Are they brittle? Have you just flipped religious practices for some other religious practices? It's important that we consider that. It's important that we look at our motivation of what we do and why we do it. Is our eyes on 
being religious or are our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Today, we have the opportunity, I'm going to mess up my worship team, but today we have the opportunity to uh, take communion. And this is another potential ritual which we participate in once a month here at Alpine. And as we go into communion, if you're a follower of Christ, we'd like you to participate in this. But as we approach communion today, maybe it would be good for us to consider why we're doing it. Are we doing it just to fulfill a requirement? Are we doing it just because it's the thing to do? Have we fallen into that brittle religious system? Or does this have meaning to us? Is it something that we do as a heart response to what Christ has done for us? So if you would, if you could open and take the wafer out. This represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and me, that hung on the cross not so that we were tied down to a bunch of rules and rituals, but was done so that you could have freedom and have fullness in life now and for eternity. Let's partake as we remember the body of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup, and the cup represents the blood of Christ, the shedding of his blood for us. Again, Christ didn't do this just so that we could live a religious life. He did it so that we could have true life, so that we could be free in him, so that we could have eternal life. By his blood, we have been set free. He's the only one that could take our unrighteousness and make it righteous. Let's participate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you that you love us, that you died for us, that you care about us, that you put up with us. Lord, help us remember why we do the things that we do. Lord, help us not to just become ritualistic. Help us not just to be religious, just to be religious. 
Help us to do the things we do as a true heart response to how we love you for what you've done for us. Because while we were yet enemies, you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.